This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Loving Father, we know that you are a God who speaks. We pray that you would speak to us this morning. Would you show us your ways, O Lord, and teach us your paths? We pray that you would speak for your servants are listening. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, about a year ago, in my second sermon here at Church of the Ascension, I talked about my beloved lemon tree. It figured as an illustration in that sermon. And as it turns out, this is the one thing that I've said in all of my time that's gotten the most response from this church. And I don't know if that says more about you or about me, but uh, I decided to give the people what they wanted. I brought the tree back. You can see it's doing well in my care. But seriously, people regularly ask me how this tree is doing. And I brought it back this morning because I think this humble little tree has more to teach us. I think it can actually help us to understand what's going on in this letter to the Colossians in our passage this morning. So I bought this tree on the internet a year ago. It arrived in a box and I repotted it. And it flourished, at least for a little while. It was green and leafy. It had lots of flowers. It was a happy little tree. But about two months ago, I discovered that it wasn't so happy any longer. Its leaves started turning yellow, it looked sad and droopy. It had flowers, but the flowers weren't becoming fruit. The tree was planted and it flourished for a season, but it needed some love. My tree needed nourishment, and so I fed it. I gave it some plant food, I sprayed some stuff on its leaves, and if you look closely at the end of the service, you'll see two little lemons on it. They're green because they're very young, but they'll turn yellow soon. And there's more lemons on the way. And I think what happened with my tree gives us some insight into why Paul writes this letter to the Colossians 2,000 years ago. Paul didn't start this church, Epaphras did. And when the church was planted, when it first started, it did very well, at least at first. It was green and leafy and it was bearing much fruit. But over time, the church began to stray. The church grew malnourished and its leaves started to turn yellow. And so Paul, he steps in, he intervenes, he writes this letter. He steps in to care for this young church plant in Colossae. And in our passage this morning, we see that Paul steps in to care for the church in two different ways. First, he reminds the church, he reminds the Christians there of who they are. He reminds them of their identity. And secondly, perhaps most importantly, he prays for them. And so for the next two minutes, or the next few minutes, I should say, it'll be a a little longer than than two minutes, uh, sorry to say, we're going to look at these things together, and we're going to look at these things with an eye ultimately to energize our life of prayer. So first, Paul reminds the Christians in Colossae of who they are. Now, like all of his letters, Paul writes with a particular purpose. There was always a reason, there was always a need, or some sort of challenge or issue facing the churches that would cause Paul to write letters. And we don't know exactly what the issue was that they were facing, but we can kind of piece it together by reading Paul's polemic in chapter 2 of his letter. 
After a few years of healthy growth, some sort of false teaching started to spread in this community like weeds. The Colossians were tempted to think that they had to perform certain rituals, do these ascetic practices like fasting, denying themselves in extreme ways, and even have mystical experiences. They need to have these extra things to be real and proper Christians. That was the issue that they were facing. The root of the threat to the church was this. They started to look beyond the gospel for ultimate spiritual fulfillment. They were tempted to look beyond the gospel for something more than the gospel for what it meant to be a Christian. And this is why Paul is so emphatic about the power of the gospel in their lives. That's why he emphasizes the gospel. Well, verses 1 through 8, Paul tells them the truth about themselves. It's the first thing he does. They are saints. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are a community that has been formed and transformed by the gospel. And Paul reminds them of what the gospel is, lest they forget. In verses 13 and 14, Paul emphasizes the personal and the communal dimensions of the gospel. He writes, God has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And a few verses later, Paul emphasizes the cosmic dimensions of the gospel. This isn't printed in our bulletin, but in verses 17 and 20 of the same chapter, he writes this, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. And through the cross, God has reconciled all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. There's a personal and communal dimension to the gospel, and there's also a cosmic dimension. And Paul tells the Colossians who they are, that they're people transformed by this gospel. And sometimes when we're stuck, we're stuck in a rut in our faith, we just need to hear someone tell us the truth about who we are. That's what Paul does. He says, you are a people transformed by the gospel. And he says, we have proof. Epaphras has told us. In verses 4 and 5, he says, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. He's saying in your personal lives and in your life together, in your work in the city, we hear that you're helping peel back the corners of darkness in Colossae. So you don't need these man-made traditions. You don't need to observe certain feast days. You don't have to have visions to become the type of people that God is creating you into, that he wants you to be. You already have everything that you need in the gospel, is what he's trying to say. And yet, while all of this is true about the Colossians, the gospel movement in this city is nevertheless at risk. Despite their strong start, their leaves are starting to turn yellow. A good start doesn't guarantee a strong finish. In the same way that a great wedding doesn't guarantee a happy marriage. And this is because of the nature of faith, of the type of thing faith is. Faith is not a static thing. We're always either growing closer to God or drawing further from him. We're always either becoming more like Jesus or less like him. And so, in effect, Paul is saying, you have been led to believe that you need something beyond the gospel, but that is simply not true. What you need is the gospel to sink deeper down into your bones. And I think what was true for the Colossians 2,000 years ago is true for us. And this is why Martin Luther said that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day, 
We need to hear the gospel every week. That's why we come to church every week, to hear the gospel, because we need to hear it. We're so prone to forgetting and to wandering. And so the first thing Paul does is he reminds these dear ones, these brothers and sisters in Christ, of who they are. They are a people who have been transformed by the gospel. And as vital as this is, as vital as it is to be told the truth about ourselves, Paul knows that they need more than just his words on this piece of papyrus. The Colossians need God to press the gospel down deeper. And so the second thing that Paul does is he prays for this church, and he tells them how he prays. And he prays for them because he knows that the only way for this church, and for any Christian, to grow tall, to grow deep, is through God's power and presence raining down on us. And this happens through prayer. You know, one of the most underrated dimensions of Paul's ministry is his life of prayer. We tend to think of Paul as a great missionary and as a great theologian, and he was those things. But before he was those things, he was a great man of prayer. In fact, being a man of prayer is what enabled him to be an effective and fruitful minister of the gospel. Paul is a man of prayer. And if you read his letters, you get a sense that he was just always praying nonstop. You get a taste of it uh, here in Romans 1.9 where he writes to the church in Rome, For God is my witness that without ceasing I remember you always in my prayers. And then his letter to the church in Thessalonica, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And then in our passage this morning, in verse 9, Paul writes, for this reason, since the day we heard of your faith, we have not ceased praying for you. Paul constantly prayed for the churches, for the Christians, because Paul knew the power of prayer. He knew that his work as an apostle, his work as a pastor, his work as a Christian was all but worthless without prayer. And that's also why he's constantly asking the, the churches that he's writing letters to, to pray for him. We see that at the end of Colossians in verses uh, 4-3. Pray for us, Paul writes, that God will open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul is always praying for Christians, and he's always asking his fellow brothers and sisters to pray for him, because Paul knows that prayer is air, that prayer is water. Without it, our leaves turn yellow, and our faith shrivels up, and it dies. And I think that means one of the greatest ways that we can love one another and serve one another as a church is by praying for one another. And so with the rest of our time this morning, I want to unpack Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 14 of this passage. And I want to look through this so that we can be equipped to join our voices with Christians who have been praying this amazing and beautiful prayer for 2,000 years. So let's look at this prayer together. Well, verses 9 through 14 is a single sentence in Greek. It's definitely a run-on sentence. It's almost like Paul is writing down his prayer as he's praying for the church. And it feels a bit stream of consciousness. It's long, and it can be a bit hard to track with. So first, I want to summarize the prayer for us, and then we're just going to kind of walk through each of the six petitions that we find in this prayer, like bullet points. Okay, so I would summarize the prayer like this. Paul prays that the church would understand God's desire for the world so that their lives would align with that desire 
and please him. And then he spells out four qualities of such a life that's pleasing to him. A life that is pleasing to God is marked by fruitful work, by deep knowledge of God, by endurance through dark days, and finally, by gratitude. So we're going to unpack each of these six petitions now. And the goal here isn't just to kind of cognitively understand this passage. The goal is to grasp the pattern of prayer here so that we can go and do likewise, that we can imitate Paul and pray like Paul prayed. And as we go through each of these petitions, I think it can be helpful to think of each of them as a rung on a ladder. Each one of these petitions is helping us climb up to God in prayer. Okay, so the first petition in verse 9. Paul prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God, that they would know God's will, that we would know God's will. Now, when we hear this phrase, God's will, I think our first instinct is to assume that this is about some sort of particular direction for our individual lives. What should I do when I grow up? Which college should I go to? Should I marry this person? Should I break up with this person? But God's will here is more macro than this. It means to know God's desire for creation, his plans and his purposes for the world. If we truly understand God's will, we know that he's much more concerned about who we are becoming than the college that we go to. He's much more concerned with you being kind and gentle than he is about whether you should be a lawyer or a teacher or a stay-at-home mom. And so first, Paul prays for knowledge, but knowledge is never meant to just stay up here in our heads. Paul prays that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that, in verse 10, you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, lives that please him. And this is the second petition. It's about our overall conduct of our lives. And Paul prays for this because to be a Christian is not simply saying yes to a set of beliefs. It's not less than that, right? We'll do that in a few minutes as we recite the Nicene Creed. But it's much more than saying yes to a set of beliefs. It's a way of life. It's a way of living. And so in other words, Paul prays that this knowledge of God's will would be translated into wisdom. It would be translated into wisdom. And wisdom is simply the art of living in God's world in God's way. And so in the final four petitions, Paul describes what that looks like. He prays for different ways uh, that are different qualities of life that are pleasing to him. And so we'll look at the final four petitions here. So the third petition, Paul prays that we would bear fruit in every good work. So what does Paul have in mind by bearing fruit in every good work? Well, I don't think he has any one thing in mind, nothing in particular. And I don't think he's thinking about so-called spiritual or churchy things like evangelism only, although that would be part of it. I think Paul is trying to be as comprehensive as possible with this petition. And I think we get a taste of what he's talking about a little bit later in the letter in Colossians 3.23, where Paul writes, whatever you do, whatever task, whatever work is before you, throw yourself into it, he writes, working as for the Lord and not for men. So whether that's changing diapers or writing a paper or performing surgery preparing a meal for somebody, whether that's working in a garden, Paul prays that we would do the good work that God has put before us each and every day 
and that we would do this good work well. That's what it means to bear fruit in every good work, that our work would bear fruit and that it would bring life, whatever it is that's before us on any given day. And so in this third petition, Paul is praying for the work of our hands. And then in the fourth petition, Paul again prays for our heads. He prays that we would grow in the knowledge of God. And I think uh, this is one that is easier for many of us in the church. Here, Paul has in mind enjoying a rich and deep theological life, an ever-deepening understanding of God's ways and God's world. As we feast on God's word, as we read it ourselves, as we hear it preached and taught, and as we pay attention to God's presence in the mundane moments of our everyday. This brings us to the fifth petition. We're going pretty quickly through, through some of these. In verse 11, we find the fifth petition, and that is Paul prays that we would be empowered by God's power, be strengthened by God's strength to endure dark days with patience. Now, I heard a speech this past week by Duke women's basketball coach that she gave to her players, and I think uh, her speech helps us to understand uh, what's going on in this petition. Coach Lawson was uh, talking to her players, and she said that most of us spend our lives waiting around for things to get easier. She says, we just kind of say this mantra over in our heads. Once I get through this, life will get easier. Once I get through college, life will get easier. Once I get through grad school, life will get easier. Once I get through this tough stretch at work, life will get easier. Once I get through this difficult season of marriage, once I get through the terrible twos, once I get through, you can fill in the blank, life will get easier. This is what she says we often tell ourselves, but Coach Lawson says that's not true. It will never get easier. Life doesn't get easier, life only gets harder. She says we can't just wait around for life to get easier. Instead, what we need to do is we need to become the type of people who handle hard better. And I think that's what Paul is praying for here. You'll notice he doesn't pray that the hard stuff would stop. He doesn't pray that the Colossians' lives would get easier. He prays that God would strengthen us to be the type of people who handle hard better. And that brings us to our sixth and final petition in this prayer in verse 12. Paul ends with gratitude. And he ends by praying for our hearts. And I think this is the climax of the prayer here in Colossians. This is the climax, I think, because the gospel and gratitude are so linked in the Apostle Paul's mind. Gratitude is a kind of barometer for the gospel. So what do I mean by calling gratitude a barometer for the gospel? Well, ingratitude, I think, is a sign, if we aren't grateful, it's a sign that the gospel has shallow roots in our hearts. And gratitude is a sign of just the opposite. If we are a grateful people, it's a sign that the gospel is planted deep roots in our hearts. The greater our grasp of the gospel, the gift of grace, and what God has done for us in Christ, the greater our experience of gratitude, Paul says. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, you know, Kevin, I don't really feel particularly grateful this morning. I'm sure you're in good company. And the solution to feeling this way isn't to fake it until you make it and just try to will yourself into gratitude. The only solution here is to believe in the gospel, to hear the gospel again 
and to believe it again. To believe that in Christ, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. To ask God to help you really know deep down what that means for you, what that means for your life. So I said a few minutes ago that my goal in unpacking this passage wasn't just that we would understand it, but it was to help us pray. And so I want to end this morning by challenging the church to pray, to pray this week. So this is what I am asking you to do. This is what I'm challenging you to do every day this week. Every day this week, I want you to set aside five or ten minutes to pray following Paul's pattern of prayer here in Colossians 1 to intercede for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you already have a healthy rhythm of prayer, just add this on top of that. An extra five or 10 minutes will be great. And if you don't have a habit of praying, this is a perfect way to kickstart a life of prayer, to get the ball rolling, to, to pray more. So here's what I want. Pick two people to pray for every day. And pray these six petitions from Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And you don't have to memorize these. Open up your Bible and follow along. You can just follow along as Paul prays. And as you do it, try to personalize this prayer for the people that you're praying for. So if you happen to be praying for a stay-at-home mom, try to imagine what her day might be like. And pray for her. Try to imagine some of the, the challenges she's going to have to endure. And pray that she would be able to endure those particular things. If you're praying for somebody who's facing an illness or having a hard time at work, maybe trying to find work or struggling with a relationship, pray that God would strengthen them to endure in those particular things. Take Paul's prayer and particularize it for these people that we love. And if you want to, you can even call them or email them or text them and let them know that you're praying for them. Somebody did that for me this week and I can't tell you how encouraging it was to hear that somebody was praying for me. And as we pray this week, as we pray every day, remember, think of these petitions as rungs of a ladder. Each one of them is taking us further up and further into the presence of God. As we climb this ladder, as we pray these petitions, we are bringing our loved ones before the face of God. And as we climb up, we're praying to the God who listens to us. We're praying to the God who loves us. The God who desires nothing more than the gospel would bear fruit in all of our lives. Let's pray. Father, I began this morning praying that you would show us your ways and that you would teach us your paths. And Lord, you've done that through this passage. And I pray that you would help us to see what you have for us here, Lord, that you would equip us, that you would empower us to pray. Thank you for showing us your paths, Lord. Help us to go and follow you, to go and do likewise. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.